Chapter 35, beginning in verse 1, I'm going to read the first five verses. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites, speak to them and bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. And I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdaliah, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. Then I set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said, drink wine. In chapter 34, we looked at Judah's rulers, and now we're going to look at Judah's role models. The Lord is going to do something unusual. He's going to command Jeremiah to visit a settlement in Judah where the Rechabites were living. The Rechabites were an interesting group of people who we're going to talk about more in just a moment. In verse 1, it says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. The narrative in Jeremiah is going to flash back. Now, again, if you're used to reading and it goes from the beginning to the middle to the end, and, and you, you, you get kind of confused and disoriented because Jeremiah isn't written in chronological order. As a matter of fact, we've gone to the place where the city has been under siege and has collapsed and fallen by the Babylonian armies. And now Jeremiah goes back 18 years earlier from chapter 34. So from chapter 34 to chapter 35, we're going back in time. The people of Judah, you'll remember, and the people of Jerusalem were consistently unfaithful and disobedient and rebellious against God. And so when the book was being prepared and compiled, the Lord was presenting a series of arguments of why this kind of judgment was going to be necessary. And so in verse 2, it says, go into the house of the Rechabites, speak to them, bring them into the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, and give them wine to drink. So who are these people? Who are the Rechabites? This, these were members of a clan known as the Kenites in Numbers chapter 10, verse 29. If you go back even earlier to the story of the Exodus You'll remember Moses lived in a place called Midian and he married a girl from there and his father-in-law was a guy named Jethro and he was a Midianite. And so the Kenites were a group of people who came alongside of Israel when they were exiting Egypt and they were preparing to go into the promised land. And then there was this person named Jonadab or Jehonadab, who was the son of Rechab, who lived in the time of Jehu, which was about 842 to 815 B.C. So some 250 plus years earlier, Jonadab supported Jehu in killing the priests and the prophets of Baal in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 15 through 27. Jonadab expressed his complete and utter disgust with the cultural collapse that was taking place of the Baal worship, the cult worship, um, the temples of prostitution. In other words, Jonadab rejected the culture and rejected the civilization associated with Baal worship. And he wanted to make a radical and fundamental change and go back to the more primitive lifestyle of when 
the people were wandering in the, in the wilderness. So he called his family to a radical rejection of the cultural wickedness. If I were going to use an example, it would be very much like the Amish. Are any of you familiar with the Amish? The people who don't use modern technology, who have a horse and a buggy, they're very self-sufficient, they, they grow their own food, they, they make their own utensils. In other words, the Amish people are a people who are, are looking for a, a more fundamental and, and simple way of living. And so Jonadab, who was the son of Rechab, said, you know what? This place is disgusting. The culture is disgusting. We're going to go back into the desert. We're going to live in tents. We're going to live a simpler lifestyle. We're going to return to a more pure and simple faith. And we are going to abandon the luxuries and the soft living offered by the Canaanite culture. So. So what are we to make of this? Why is God seeming to ask Jeremiah to serve the Rechabites wine in order to tempt them? So now we're going to read a little bit further. It says in verse six, but they said, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab. Our father commanded us saying, you shall drink no wine, you nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house, you shall not sow seed, you shall not plant a vineyard, nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where your sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father. And all that he charged us to drink no wine all our days, or our wives, our sons, or our daughters nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have vineyard, field, or seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, Come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell at Jerusalem. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Amend your doings. Do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people has not obeyed me. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the doom that I pronounced against them because I've spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I've called to them and they have not answered. And Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Because you have obeyed the commandment of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Some people reading this at the beginning when it says, go, Jeremiah. And give these guys wine. It would seem that serving them is tempting them in order to break their commandments or break their vows. Now, here's what we know. In the book of James, chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, we learn that God doesn't tempt 
anyone. As a matter of fact, in, J- in James chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. Verse 14 of James chapter 1, But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Number one, does God tempt anyone? The answer is no. Temptation is a solicitation to evil. Does God test people? The answer is yes. God will test. What is the difference between a test and a temptation? A test is a mechanism that God will often employ to try to determine what's inside of your heart. Does God test you because he doesn't know what's inside of your heart and he wants to find out? No. He knows what's inside of your heart. He doesn't test you because he's curious about what's going on inside of you. He tests you so that you will understand what's going on inside of you. Haven't you ever asked the question, I wonder what I would do if. God did this, or if God did that. Warren Wearsby calls this an action sermon. What the Lord does, and if you look carefully, it says the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord. And then again, in verse 5, when it says, Then I set before the sons of the house of Rechabites, this is Jeremiah doing it, and I said to them, Drink wine. Why is that important? Because he doesn't say, the Lord has commanded me to tell you that you should drink wine. Is that what the Lord told him? No. It's a test. It's literally one of those Jeremiah living parables. Jeremiah is going to use this opportunity to serve as a living parable to plead with his people. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish culture, it was not wrong to drink wine, but it was wrong to get drunk. It was wrong for the Rechabites to drink wine because they had made a commitment not to drink wine. The leader refuses to disobey his ancestor by ruining his testimony. But remember all of the reasons why they decided to do this. They made a decision that they were going to live a simple life, a a simple life of submission and obedience to the Lord. The Lord isn't commending this family or tribe for their personal standards of teetotaling abstinence, but rather for their faithfulness to their father's command. Someone said, unless we have within us that which is above us, we shall yield to that which is about us. He says in verse three, then I took Jazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, the son of Habazaniah, his brothers and all his sons and the whole house of the Rechabites. Now, the name Jazaniah is kind of cool. But you never hear people naming their kids Jazaniah. But let me tell you what it means. It's a beautiful word. It means the Lord hearkens. Or the Lord is paying attention. And the name Habazaniah means the lamp of the Lord. And it says in verse 4, and I brought them into the house of the Lord. Now, this is important. I want you to understand just for a moment where the test is taking place. I brought them into the house of the Lord. Because tests take place in any number of different places, don't they? Do you ever get tempted at church? See, you're laughing because you're going, oh, oh, yeah. But it's a different kind of test here, isn't it? It's different than when you're at the movie theater or if you're in front of the television or if you're traveling around. You might be distracted. You might be disoriented. Your mind might wander. But you usually don't have 
profound kinds of temptations. But they're going to go to the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the son of Igdali, a man of God, which was by the chamber of the princes above the chamber of Messiah, the son of Shalom, the keeper of the door. What does all of this have to do? Because the test is taking place in front of the priests and the leaders of Jerusalem. Why? Because God is going to use these particular people to be a living illustration of a group of people who are willing to hear and obey something that they haven't done. Why is this important to you? Because God might place you in a circumstance that oddly enough, has little to do with you and it has everything to do with the people who are around you, God is going to place you in a circumstance where the people watching are going to wonder, I wonder what a Christian will do in this circumstance. I wonder how a Christian's going to respond in a car accident. I wonder how a Christian's going to respond if they get sick. I wonder how a Christian is going to respond if they lose their job. I wonder how a Christian is going to respond if they find themselves in difficulty or distress and the unbelievers all around you look at you they go oh I I thought so you know I thought maybe that God might make a difference in your life or that Jesus might make a difference in your life So on the temple mount, in the temple complex, there were multiple rooms used exclusively for the priests. But apparently there were other rooms that would be available to the public. The name Hanan, by the way, means gracious or merciful. And Messiah means the work of the Lord. But this is why this is important. The place of the test is important. And the people watching the test Becomes important. And then again, look again in verse 5. Then I, that's Jeremiah, set before the sons of the house of the Rechabites bowls full of wine and cups. And I said to them, drink wine. Now, the Rechabites might be thinking, well, you know, when in Jerusalem, do as the Jerusalem's people do. Imagine if you're in Amish country and all of a sudden a person who has never driven an automobile or a person who's never used modern technology or whatever, they come into the big city and you go, hey, you're in the big city now. How, how, how would you like to do something technologically cool? Here, here's an iPad. We have an app for that. I remember the story about a boy who was helped by a wise pastor. The pastor told the boy, when you're in trouble, kneel down and ask for God's help, but never climb over the fence into the devil's ground and kneel down and ask for help. Pray from God's side of the fence. And they're on God's side of the fence. And here's a group of people. Who are going to keep their word. Look what it says in verse 6. But they said we will drink no wine. For Jonadab the son of Rechab. Our father commanded us saying. You shall drink no wine. You nor your sons forever. You shall not build a house. Sow seed. Plant a vineyard. Nor have any of these. But all your days you shall dwell in tents. That you may live many days in the land where you are sojourners. Thus we have obeyed the voice of Jonadab the son of Rechab our father. And all that he charged us to drink no wine in all our days. We, our wives, our sons, our daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in, nor do we have a vineyard or a field or a seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that our Jonadab, our father, commanded us. Now, why? Why? Why did they make this radical separation? Remember, I said it to you earlier. They didn't want to be polluted, defiled, and and, uh, Live the life that these other people were living. They wanted a different life. They wanted a simple life of faith and honoring to God. And so Jonadab, the son of Rechab, in giving the command not to drink wine, not to live in houses, not to farm land, to, to live in tents. It was a call to simplicity and separation and holiness. And by the way, 
Does that mean that everybody has to do what they're doing? No, this, that's not the point of this story. And that's not the point of the illustration. The point of the illustration that's being used in the passage that God is making with the people of Jerusalem and Judah. It is that here are human beings who live according to man-made commands and they're willing to, to obey their ancestors. But you're not willing to obey God. The idea for them was to make a radical separation from the world, from the corruption of the world, from the sinful and evil influences of the world. And so there's Jeremiah, there's the bowls of wine, and there's everybody watching, and the people are saying, you know what? A long time ago, we made a commitment that this is the kind of life that we were going to live, and we've honored that commitment. By the way, how long have they been honoring the commitment? Remember what I said to you earlier that this took place during the time of Jehu. This is 300 years earlier, 250 to 300 years earlier. In other words, these group of people have been following this lifestyle, not for 50 years, not for 100 years, not even for 150 years, but for over 250 years. This group of people have said, this is the kind of life that we're going to have. They hadn't broken their commitment for over 200 years. Isn't that interesting? The families never got drunk. They never built houses. They never planted vineyards or crops. They lived in tents and obeyed the commands of their forefather and founder, Jonadab. And the only reason why they were in the city of Jerusalem to begin with was because of the Chaldean army and the Babylonian army. The only reason why they were there was because they were in danger of becoming extinct. So are they compromising in order to avoid extinction? No. They understand that it doesn't make sense (laughs) to die and they're going to seek the safety and security of the city. But at least they can do some way to honor the commitments and the lifestyle that has been passed down to them from generation to generation. You know, Christians have almost completely abandoned the idea of self-denial and self-control and self-restraint. For some reason, we live in a culture and a society where we have adopted the idea that to be a Christian means that you're no different from anyone else in this world. But that's not exactly what the Bible has in mind. When it calls you out of the world, there's a radical separation from sin, but there's also a radical attachment to knowing and loving and honoring the God of the Bible. Socrates said, know yourself. Marcus Aurelius said, control yourself. Other oriental uh, sages said, give yourself. But Jesus said, deny yourself. And so Jeremiah is delivering the message. If the command of a mere man was honored and obeyed by his family for over two centuries, why won't the people of Judah and why won't the people of Jerusalem obey the command of God? Maybe there's something unique and specific about your culture or society or something that's been handed down in your family from generation to generation. There's things that are unique and specific in your life. And so you honor those things about your family or about your culture or about your tradition. But here's the point that Jeremiah is trying to make. Why would you remain inconsistent? Why are you In a perpetual cycle of disobedience. This Rechabite leader gave the command one time over 200 years ago. God gave Judah and Jerusalem repeated commands in every generation. One man giving one command over 200 years ago and they follow him. One Lord and God giving a command and repeating those commands and every generation and people just said, "Mm, we're not going to do it. 
So look what it says in verse 11. But it came to pass with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon came up into the land that we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and for fear of the army of the Syrians. So we dwell in Jerusalem. In other words, we're here. We're here under difficult circumstances, but we're not prepared to abandon those things that we have held close as a part of our identity and tradition for all of these years. And so that's exactly what happens, learning the lessons of obedience. Look at verse 12. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and tell the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Will you not receive instruction to obey my words, says the Lord? Verse 14. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine or perform. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. The Lord argues that if a mere man honors mere human commands, why wouldn't you obey the word of the Lord? Remember what Jesus said in the New Testament? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So when the person says, I love Jesus, but I'm not too keen on keeping the commandments. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that what you actually do with the information that Jesus gives you matters to Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they respond to me. I heard the story of a little girl who was asked by a friend, hey, will you go on a picnic with me? And the little girl said, I need to go ask my mom. And so she went to go ask her mom and her mother said no. And so she came back to her friend and she said, I can't go. My mother said no. And her friend said, go back and ask harder. Beg her. Don't let her off that easy. And the little girl said, you don't understand. When my mother says no, she means no. She doesn't change her mind. She knows what's best for me. So I do what she says. I know you're thinking, I've never heard of that little girl. (laughs) That's the girl I want in my family. That's the attitude that I want from my son and my daughter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if a Christian had that attitude? Hey, you know what? God's spoken on this issue. And he doesn't change his mind. You know what? The Lord has spoken concerning this particular issue or that particular issue. You know, the Lord has already made it abundantly clear that there's a certain things that and directions that I can and can't go. And, 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 you know, he does that because he has my best interest in mind. The Lord loves me and I love him. And I want to do what he wants me to do. The Lord had spoken to Judah and Jerusalem. God had sent them prophets. That expression, you'll remember what it means, rising early and speaking. It implies, I got up extra, extra early to let you know what the day would be like. I let you know ahead of time. By the way, hasn't that been your experience? The real God of heaven speaks to you and says, I've I've tried to let you know what's good. Remember what the Bible says? He's shown you, O man and woman, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility with your God. He says in verse 15, I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them saying, turn now everyone from his evil way. Amend your doings. Do not go after other gods to serve them. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given you and your fathers. But you have not inclined your ear. You have not obeyed me. Look what what it says. Did God give Judah and Jerusalem repeated warnings? Yes. It wasn't even a situation 
That's one chance. That's two chances. That's three chances. That's four chances. It's sort of like me and you, huh? Every morning the Lord says, hey, how'd you like to spend some time with me? No, it's too early to get up. Hey, how about opening up your Bible? Later. Remember, all of these things is to cultivate friendship and relationship and friendship with the Lord so he can speak to you. He says, guess what? I, I, I told you, hey, look, turn now everyone from his evil way. Amend your doings. It's just like in the New Testament. Repent. Turn, go in a different direction. You've been following a way of rebellion and disobedience and selfishness. That's not for you. That's not who you are. That's not what you're supposed to be doing. Turn and go in a different direction. You're not to be preoccupied with the things of this world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. That's not who you are. You're not supposed to go after other gods to serve them. And again, these are small G's that aren't even real. Then you will dwell in the land which I have given to you and your fathers. And remember, the land becomes a type and a picture in the Old Testament of the symbol in the New Testament of what it means to occupy Jesus. But look what it says. But you have not inclined your ear nor obeyed me. To turn from the sinful practices, to repent, to reject the false gods, to obey and to inherit the land, the inconsistent. This is the point. The inconsistent repeatedly rejected the appeals of the prophets. And so in verse 16, it says, Surely the sons of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, have performed the commandment of their father, which he commanded them. But this people have not obeyed me. Warren Wiersbe points out, and I quote, how often God's people are put to shame by the devotion and discipline of people who don't even know the Lord, but who are intensely loyal to their family, their religion or their personal pursuits. Even people who want nothing to do with the word of God can be loyal to traditions and man-made codes. If Christians were putting into their spiritual walk the kind of discipline that athletes put into their chosen sport, the church would be pulsating with revival life. Will an Olympic athlete train and discipline himself or herself in order to excel in their particular sport? Do unbelievers work hard to play basketball, football, baseball? I had a person on my radio program earlier this week who was a former Jehovah's Witness. And she talked about from the, her, her earliest memories were her mother and father taking her as a baby door to door, ringing the doorbell, handing out the tracts of Jehovah's kingdom. <laughs> Walter Martin used to say, they're willing to do for a lie what Christians aren't even willing to do for the truth. And so you look at the unbeliever. And you look at the people in the world. And the sacrifices that they're willing to make. And the discipline they're willing to embrace. I came across this little prose by an unknown author. The Lord had a job for me, but I had so much to do. I said, you'll get somebody else or wait till I get through. But I don't know how the Lord made out. No doubt he got along, but I felt kind of sneaking like I knew I'd done God wrong. One day I needed the Lord. I needed him right away. But he never answered me at all. And I could hear him say, 
down in my accusing heart. Child of mine, I've got too much to do. You get somebody else or wait till I get through. Now, when the Lord has a job for me, I never try to shirk. I drop what I have on my hands and do the Lord's good work. And my affairs can run along or wait till I get through. For nobody else can do the work that God has marked for you. You have a unique and specific gift and you have a unique and a specific opportunity. You have been placed in circumstances where I never get to go. You get to talk to people that I never get to talk to. You get to go places, do things and be involved in things. And God prepares you and gives you this wonderful opportunity. And sometimes... He knocks on the door of your heart and he encourages you to go in a particular direction. Hey, will you do this? Will you go here? Will you say this? And so in verse 17, look what it says. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will bring on Judah... And on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all the doom that I have pronounced against them, because I have spoken to them, but they have not heard. And I have called to them, but they have not answered. And see, this is part of the key. God says, I called to them. They didn't answer. I spoke to them, but they refused to hear. I've said this before and I'll say it again. No one will wind up in heaven by accident. And no one will wind up in hell by accident. No one will be in heaven by accident. No one will be in hell by accident. Not a single person in eternity future will look at God and say, how come you never told me? How come you never gave me a chance? How come I never had an opportunity to turn from my sin? How come I never had an opportunity to embrace Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior? How come I never had an opportunity to respond to your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness? How come I never had an opportunity to trust you and to love you with my life? I'm going to tell you right now, that's never going to happen. No one will ever point their finger at God and say, you were unfair, you were unkind, you were unjust. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that heaven's host says, just and true are your ways, O Lord. So what are the elements that bring judgment? Now think about this. God speaks. It isn't the silence that you have to worry about. Mark Twain said, it isn't the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that worry me. It's the parts that I do understand. So what are the elements that bring judgment? God speaks, but people refuse to hear. God calls. People refuse to answer. You know, each and every one of you have had that opportunity, haven't you? God's spoken to you. God's called to you. And wonderfully, most of you have responded. God speaks. He goes, oh, I need you to turn from your sin and I need you to trust Jesus as as your Lord and your Savior. And you go, okay. God speaks. I need you to go in a particular direction. I need you to go left instead of right. I need you to go straight instead of crooked. I need you to go on the narrow way instead of the broad way that leads to destruction. 
but because they've rejected his appeals, because they've refused to listen to his voice and because they've disobeyed him. And so then he goes with the blessings of obedience in verse 18. And it says, and Jeremiah says to the house of the Rechabites, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the commandments of Jonadab, your father, and kept all his precepts and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Why? Because they were willing in simplicity and obedience to follow a lifestyle of love and loyalty. The Lord extends the promise to the Rechabites because they lived consistent lives separate from the world, separate from this world's false promises of position and power and prestige. And think about it. Because they also served as godly models. When was the last time you prayed a prayer? Lord, I want to honor you and obey you because my wife is watching, because my husband is watching, because my children are watching. William Bennett, who is the former education director, and he currently serves as a Salem talk show host, he said, quote, There is nothing more influential in a, life's, in a child's life than the moral power of a quiet example. For children to take morality seriously, they must see adults who take morality seriously. Do you realize your children will probably take the Bible as seriously as you do? Your children will probably take church as seriously as you do. Your children will probably take obedience to the commandments of God as seriously as you do. Your children will probably take confession and repentance and forgiveness And prayer as seriously as you do. How serious are you spending time with the Lord, speaking to the Lord, loving the Lord, serving the Lord, confessing when you're wrong, extending forgiveness? To others in order to heal relationships. Here's the Lord's promise. Jonadab, you're going to always have at least some godly descendants. Here's the point. The Lord rewards faithfulness. We're not given much more information about the Rechabites. As a matter of fact, when you read in verse 19, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not lack a man to stand before me forever. Well, what happened to him? What happened to this group of people? Again, if you are a Bible student or a person who loves the Bible, you're going to eventually run across the book of Nehemiah in chapter 13, where Nehemiah mentions a guy named Malchijah. In chapter 3, verse 14, he calls him Malchijah, the son of Rechab. Why? The children of Judah and Jerusalem are going to go into captivity in Babylon. Seventy years are going to go by. A group of people are going to return to Jerusalem along with Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. And one of those faithful people is going to be a son of Rechab. As a matter of fact, if you do a little historical research, you'll discover there was a man named Diodorus Siculus who uh, spoke of a group of people very much like the Rechabites called the Nabataeans, who in the first century, now some 300 years after this, had a law that commanded them neither to sow corn, plant fruit, uh, bearing herb, or to drink wine, or prepare houses. And the reason was to preserve their independence, but not for Jonadab. 
the reason why he decides and his children and his children's children decide that they're going to live a life of separation and holiness and purity of faith. And by the way, Eusebius, the church historian in the third century A.D., speaks of a group of priests who were the sons of Rechab called Rechabim. And there is a group of people, even to this day, who claim direct descent from the same group of people. Why is this important to you? Because if you model a love for God, if you model a love for Jesus, if you model a complete commitment to the authority of the word of God, if you model worship, if you model discipleship, if you model evangelism, guess what? Somebody in your family is going to catch it. It's going to catch it. Much of what we do isn't simply taught, is it? It's caught. Your children almost invariably will do exactly what you do or don't do. In a poll taken by Leadership Magazine, 500 pastors were asked, What is your greatest temptation? The number one temptation was illicit sex. The second biggest temptation that pastors faced to quit the ministry. What's your biggest temptation? What's the test? What is the biggest test that you have to struggle with? Purity? Faithfulness? Trust? Submission? Obedience? Trust? What's the biggest test that God places in your life to give you an opportunity to say, will you love me? Will you follow me? Will you obey me? I need you to think about this for just a moment. Like us, the Rechabites were called out of an old life into a new life based on faith. We leave an old life and we enter a new life by faith. By faith we believe that Jesus loves us. By faith we believe that he died for us. By faith we believe that he rose from the dead. By faith we believe that he gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit. And that he comes and he lives inside of us. That he washes us and cleanses us of our sins. That he renews our mind and he purifies our heart. And empowers us with the ability to live a life that's honoring and pleasing to him. New believers are a constant reminder to seasoned believers of something that they might be missing or taking for granted. Have you ever looked at a new believer and you, you see the love in their eyes and the joy in their hearts as they begin to describe to you the life that they used to have and the, and the life that they now have in Jesus? No wonder Jesus says in Luke, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find a group of people who are doing the most simple thing? This is how they're going to know that, that you're my disciples. By your love for one another. So what if I suggested to you that Jeremiah was encouraged by the example of the Rechabites? For those of you who have been following along in our study in the book of Jeremiah, how have the people responded to his messages? Do you think Jeremiah is starving for an example of someone, someone, someone who will... Listen to God and obey God. Do you think we're living in a world that's starving 
people who will live their lives as if the Bible's really true? Do you think that the watching world is starving for a group of people who will say, do you really believe that this Bible is true? Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is Lord? Do you really believe that he changes hearts and forgives sins? Do you really believe that, that he can take you from a lifestyle of impurity to purity? Do you really believe that prayer changes things? Do you think people are starving for people who will live their lives as if the gospel is true and Jesus Christ is Lord? You know, it was D.L. Moody who heard a man say, the world has yet to see what God can do with a man who is completely yielded to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what D.L. Moody did with that information? He bowed his head and he prayed a prayer and he said, Lord, by your grace. I want to be that man. To whom much is given, much is required. Jonadab, almost 300 years earlier, said, Civilization is corrupt. Let's go to the desert. Let's return to the desert. And Jeremiah said, You know what? It's not the returning to the desert that creates the mechanism of submission and obedience. Here's what Jeremiah's message is. He's, he doesn't tell you return to the desert. He says return to the Lord. Return to the Lord. To a lifestyle. Not of rebellion, but of submission. Not of religious activity. But of a real relationship. And so. Jeremiah is encouraged. Be an example. Read your Bible. Pray. Worship. Serve. Grow. Cultivate discernment. Experience evangelism. And be aware, the next time you're placed in a test, don't simply look up. Look around. See who's watching. Because the world wonders whether or not you really believe what you say you believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing passage. Lord, we begin to understand why you've included these things in your word. And Heavenly Father, I know that for many, many people, they grow weary and well-doing. But Lord, we pray that we would not grow weary and well-doing. Lord, we pray that when we are faced with a test by your grace and by your mercy, Lord, we will... With the test, understand that you've made a way of escape. That you won't test us beyond that which we're able to endure. But you will make a way to honor you, to love you, to submit to you. And what it is that you're asking us to do. And so again, Lord. For a world that's starving for examples of people who will live their lives as if the gospel is true. Lord, we pray that we would be men and women. Who reflect your love, your forgiveness, your grace, your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.